I mean, all of these wrongful conviction cases, ultimately the system works. People do want to tell their stories. You break the law, there are consequences. All right, hello. Welcome to True Crime and Consequences. I'm Kari. And I'm Brian. And we are back at you today with our very first case. How exciting. So excited. <laughs> first real case episode. First real case. First, first real case episode. And as I said in our introduction, uh, we're covering the West Memphis Three. Special case to me, really, because it's kind of the first real true crime case that... Um, caught my attention at the ripe age of 13, 14, somewhere in there. And I'm now 40, if that tells you how long I've been digging on this case. And it kind of sparked, I don't want to say obsession, because that may not be the right word. That sounds kind of psycho, but we'll call it an obsession <laughs> with true crime. So I know there's been a lot of documentaries made about this. I know there's been a lot of, you know, ID specials and various other news related shows and podcasts and YouTube videos and many other things about the West Memphis Three case. But I'm focusing on it because everyone's opinion is different and it's the one I know the best. Yeah, might as well start with material we're comfortable with or you're comfortable with. Well, and I think I've talked about it enough to you over the years that you're somewhat comfortable with. I have a basic understanding of the yeah, case. Yeah, I don't know yeah. all the details, but I have a basic well, understanding. Well, we're about to get into that. So um, without further ado, True Crime and Consequences podcast presents the West Memphis Three. So we're going to go back in time to 1993. On May 5th, which was 27, almost 27 years ago. Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, and Stevie Branch, three eight-year-old West Memphis, Arkansas Cub Scouts, went missing. Um, their day that day was normal. All three of them went to school. They all got home from school safely. The incident itself really started at Stevie's house. Um, he got home about 2.30. His mother, Pamela Hobbs, now known as Pamela Hicks, who I will from here on out refer to as Pam, Picked him up around 2.30 at school. They went home. Everything was normal. At about 3.30, Michael Moore came by the house, seeing if Stevie could play. Pam originally said no because she was getting supper ready. Terry, her husband, Terry Hobbs, was going to be home from work shortly. And they were going to have dinner. And then Terry was going to take Pam to work because she worked the dinner shift that night at a local restaurant. And, uh, you know, the, you know, kids, they're eight. So they're begging and begging and begging. No, please, please, can we go out and ride bikes? I promise, Mom, I'll be back at 4.30. And she remembers very vividly saying, you better get your butt back here by 4.30, boy, or I'm going to take that bike from you for two weeks. So off went Stevie and Michael. About 15 minutes later, uh, Christopher Byers comes by. Are Michael and Stevie home? No, I'm... You just missed them. They went out on their bikes. I'm sure if you run off, you can find them. So he said, okay, I'm going to go find them. So about 4.45 rolls around. Stevie's still not home. Terry has gotten home from work. Pam's trying to get ready to go to work. And again, the kids are nowhere to be found. And Pam said, well, I guess I just have to go to work. She can't be late for work. I mean, we're talking about West Memphis, Arkansas in the 90s. Mid to lower class 
of of people that live there. I mean, there was kind of the nice side and the not so nice side, pretty much like any town. They lived modestly. They weren't poor, but they lived modestly. And so every dime counted, kind of like us now. You know, I mean, every dime was important. So Pam went to work. The boys ended up being seen by a neighbor around 630. And they were still out in the streets, riding their bikes around, being silly. They're being eight-year-old boys. They were late getting home, and they probably knew they were going to get whooped when they got home. But they were still out playing. They were seen at 6.30. That's the last time they were seen. Ultimately, somewhere between 6.30 and 8 p.m., John Mark Byers, who goes by Mark, which was Christopher's adoptive father. A lot of people refer to him as Chris's stepfather, but he was his adoptive father and had been his adoptive father since he was a baby. He was the only father that Chris knew. Had been out, you know, walking up and down the streets, calling the boys' names because they were all late. And finally, at about 8 p.m., Mark Byers calls the police and tells them, I can't find my son. And he was out with two other little boys and we can't find them either. I've been out walking the streets looking. I can't find him. Dana Moore, Michael Moore's mother, had also been out there with Mark Byers looking for the boys. And Terry Hobbs claims that he also was out looking for the boys while Pam was at work. You know, so the police officer showed up at the Byers residence and took a statement from Mark Byers. While the officer was there, there was another call that came in at around 9 p.m. that a local restaurant about a mile, mile and a half away from the neighborhood. The manager called the police and said that there was an African-American gentleman who had come into the restaurant. And uh, a lot of other true crime podcasts and and videos will call this the Mr. Bojangles incident. So if you're familiar with the case, you know what I'm talking about. An African-American gentleman had walked into the restaurant. He was covered in mud and blood and had locked himself in the ladies' restroom. Now, ladies? In the ladies' restroom. Why he picked the ladies' restroom, I have no idea. But <clears throat> so the same officer that had responded to the Byers residence to take the missing children report from Mark Byers drove over to the Bojangles restaurant. By the time she got there, the person had left. So instead of going in and investigating, she took the report through the drive through window. She didn't even look. She didn't look. In, nothing. He was supposedly covered, covered in mud blood. and blood. And And she took just a verbal report from the manager and the staff present through the drive-thru window and then left. At 9.25, Dana Moore, which was Michael Moore's mother, calls the police, saying that her son was missing along with Stevie and Christopher. Now, during that time between the Bojangles incident and Dana Moore calling the police, Terry Hobbs goes to pick... Pam up from work. And Pam says that Terry walked in the front door. She saw him walk in of the restaurant and he walked straight to the payphone. So she grabbed a couple pieces of candy and walked out to the car, figuring the kids were going to be in the car waiting for her. Uh, They also had a daughter named Amanda. She gets out to the car and realizes that only Amanda is in the car. So she hands Amanda her piece of candy and she says, Amanda, where's Bubba? That was the nickname. Of Stevie. And Amanda says, Mama, we can't find Bubba. And she's like, What do you mean you can't find? He didn't come home. And 
She says no. So she runs back into the restaurant where Terry's on the phone with the police. So he called the police from the payphone in the lobby of the restaurant that Pam worked at. And they, the police officer, responded there and took a report. So I'm sure some of you might already know where I'm going to go with this ultimately. But to me, that seemed a little suspect that he waited so long to call the police. He never called Pam and told her that that he didn't come home before she got off work at nine. And then calls from the restaurant. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, why didn't he call from home? But we'll Well, get to that later. Did he know somebody had already called? That I I can't tell you. I don't know. So by around 10 o'clock that night, there's a mess of people scouring that neighborhood. I mean, you've got the police, you've got parents, you've got neighbors who are coming out to help. You've got police officers that were off duty that just happened to hear about it. So they came out to try to help. But the area where the boys were last seen was a kind of a dead end driveway that went into an area called Robin Hood Hills, which is it wasn't the official name. It was just kind of the neighborhood name for it. But it was a forested area that had a canal that ran through it um, right off between the neighborhood and the highway. Common place for the kids to play. Another common area, uh, another common name that the kids used was Turtle Hill because they'd go out there to catch turtles because this particular canal was just full of them and not just one species either. There was at least six or seven species of turtles out there, including alligator snapping turtles, box turtles, that kind of thing. So it was a common place for the kids to go because they wanted to play. They wanted to, you know, kids playing in the woods. It's just right. what we did. What I, mean, I did. I did it. I'm a girl and I did it. Um, but it was so dark at this point that even with a flashlight, it was nearly impossible to see anything, you know, more than a couple feet in front of your face. So they ended up calling off the search that evening and said they would pick it up at daybreak, which they did. So on May 6th, uh, Inspector Gary Gitchell of the West Memphis Police Department heads up a search party. And so they gather about 50 people, including police officers and volunteer residents, to come out and start searching for these little boys again now that we have some daylight. And there was a local juvenile police officer who lived in the area named Steve Jones, who was volunteering to help look for the little boys. And he had decided to walk the canal, not just search the woods, but walk the canal. And as he was walking the canal and kind of watching the water, he noticed a young kid's tennis shoe floating in the water. So he immediately, and this was at about 1.45 on May 6th, he uh, hollered out to Detective Mike Allen and Detective Brian Ridge, both of the West Memphis Police Department, to come help him because he'd seen this shoe. Now, uh, Detective Mike Allen went down the embankment and into the water to collect the shoe. A few minutes later, they found a Cub Scout cap. And Michael Moore was known to never take off his Cub Scout uniform. Everyone who had seen him the day before indicated that he'd been wearing his Cub Scout uniform, including his baseball cap. So they collected that. And Detective Allen was waiting about mid-thigh deep, which is about as deep as the water got. And he suddenly noticed that his foot was caught on something. And as he went to try to pull his foot out, he actually fell backwards into the water. And when his leg came up when he fell, 
a body came with it. And it was the naked and hogtied body of Michael Moore, the owner of the Cub Scout cap. Obviously, this was a shock. That is not what any of these officers expected to find that day. They expected to find three little boys hiding somewhere in the woods, scared of getting whooped because they stayed out all night. They weren't expecting a body. And once they found his body, they knew that odds were. The others were there. So, unfortunately, they were not wrong. So Detective Allen and Detective Brian Ridge get out on all fours and start searching the bottom of the canal by hand. And ultimately also find the also naked and hogtied bodies of Chris Byers and Stevie Branch. I can't imagine how traumatic that had to have been for the officers involved. I mean, I, I just, I can't even wrap my brain around it. I mean, I've seen the crime scene photos and the, and the crime scene video footage. And I can't get those images out of my head and they're secondhand images. Yeah. So I, I can't even imagine being there and, and experiencing that. It, it had to be one of the worst things they've ever gone through, I would imagine. I would think I so. Mean, Pretty I, traumatic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they also found in the process I, all of the items of clothing that the children were wearing shoved into the mud in the bottom of the canal with sticks. You could see the sticks sticking out. But the clothes had been shoved into the mud in an attempt, I assume, to, to conceal them. Yeah, to keep them submerged. Uh, at first glance, all three boys appeared to have been beaten. They appeared to have been cut on with some sort of sharp instrument. Christopher Byers' scrotum had been removed. And the skin on his penis was missing. This immediately gave the detectives the impression that maybe the murder was ritualistic in nature, which is where the satanic panic came into play. Um, because during that time in the early 90s, satanic panic had already been kind of a big deal for nearly a decade. And a lot of other cases had been influenced by it. A lot of people had been wrongfully accused of being satanic. I mean, it was basically like a redo of the Salem witch trials in a way. People were being accused left and right. So it was fresh in the minds of these officers as they're finding these bodies that they are viewing as mutilated, sexually mutilated, beaten, hogtied. I mean, they, they looked like little sacrificial lambs was how one officer would describe it. So that was his opinion of what he saw. Exactly. And you got to take, bear in mind that these officers were seriously traumatized and they want justice instantly. We're talking about eight-year-old boys. Right. You know, it's, it's a very emotionally charged situation on all levels. Um, the boys' bicycles, there were two bicycles that they had been riding around on that night and they were found also concealed in the water underneath a pipe bridge that went over the canal. So obviously... There was a lot of thought that went behind trying to conceal the crime. Somebody took time. Exactly. And... Time and effort to do whatever they wanted to do and then conceal the crime. So, of course, as the police are coming out of the woods, they have the horrendous job of telling these families that are waiting. Three families. 
that they that lost their boys. Their boys are gone. And I will never forget watching the video of when uh, Pam Hobbs was told that her son was dead. She lets out a scream like I've never heard in my life and completely just collapses onto the ground. Like her legs just stopped working. And it was, it's heartbreaking. We have two boys, my husband and I here. So the, the thought of losing one and the thought of losing one in such a horrific way is just, yeah, it's awful. I mean, I, I think that hits any parent where it hurts, you know? It's, so of course, news, it's a small town, small Southern town in the Bible Belt. News spreads quickly. And there is an instantaneous, immense amount of pressure being put on these law enforcement officers to find out who did this. Right. I mean, it it was, I've never seen that kind of reaction. I mean, it, it was, it was crazy. Yeah. Community so, outrage and, you know. I mean, the out, outrage. Oh, yeah. yeah. The outrage was real. Um, and so, like I said, due to the the apparent signs of mutilation on the bodies, the original theory of the law enforcement officers at the time was some kind of satanic ritual. So once they'd kind of gotten that into their heads that we're talking about some kind of evil demonic force behind this, they immediately the local law enforcement immediately reaches out to um, a local juvenile probation officer named Jerry Driver and asks him if he has any knowledge of anyone in the local community that might be capable of doing something like this, that might, you know, has a record of or a history of being interested in the occult or anything like that. And uh, Jerry Driver knew someone. He knew someone for sure. And that was uh, Damian Wayne Eccles. He was a local 18-year-old boy who was on probation uh, for breaking and entering into an abandoned trailer the year prior. Um, he'd spent some time in juvie for that uh, alleged crime and apparently had uh, made some strange statements and exhibited some strange behavior while in juvie. I mean, he talked about death and the occult and heavy metal music and he was always wearing black always the one thing you hear everyone talk about Damien was he always wore this black leather trench coat and it didn't matter if it was 30 degrees outside or 130 degrees outside he was wearing that black leather trench coat uh his mother says that the reason he wore black all the time it's actually kind of cute because she says the reason he wore black all the time is he wore all black one day to school and one of the girls that he liked said he looked sexy and black. Oh, yeah. If you want to so motivate just, a teen boy to right? take a behavior. So he wore black all the time after that. The funny part is he still does. I think that's hilarious. So the police immediately zeroed in on Damien. He was brought in for questioning the day after the bodies were found on May 7th. So he, of course, denied having any involvement. He didn't know anything about it. He had an alibi. He was at home with his family at the time that these alleged, that, that the murder occurred, or at least that they were alleging that the murder occurred, which was somewhere between 6.30 p.m. and probably about 9 p.m. Okay. So he was home with his okay. mom and his so sister. He's got a solid alibi. Got a solid alibi. So now at the same time, they brought in Damien's 16-year-old best friend, Jason Baldwin, 
because the police had said, well, okay, you think Damien could be capable of this, but we don't think it's possible for one person to have done this alone. So we're going to talk to Damien's best friend because Damien and Jason were known to do everything together. They were joined at the hip, basically. They, if one was somewhere, the other was right there. So they brought Jason in too. So of course, Jason, same thing. I have no idea what you're talking about. I had nothing to do with it. I was home with my, my family, which he was, or at least his mom and his siblings say he was. Okay. So they both have alibis, which were confirmed by the family members. So because they don't have any evidence, you know, they had to let him go. Right. So they did. Now, during this time, there were a couple of other people looked at. Um, about, of course, Mr. Bojangles uh, was a consideration, the, the African-American gentleman from the restaurant. But they were never able to identify who that was. And uh, the manager had actually called back, called the police back the next day when the bodies, after the bodies were found and the news had spread that the bodies had been found, he right, called he them back two and, two together. and said, uh, you know, we cleaned and everything, but there's still some blood on the wall. And he actually, and he left his sunglasses behind and, and I still have them. So Detective Brian Ridge drives out to Bojangles and he picks up the sunglasses and takes scrapings from the blood on the wall. But that's pretty much as far as that went, because Detective Brian Ridge admitted at Damien and Jason's trial that he lost the Bojangles evidence. He just lost it. Lost gone. it. It's gone. He lost. I know wow. he lost it or he lost it. Yeah, I know. But the fact remains that it's never been found since. OK, convenient. That's what I said. But, you know. So we have yet that Mr. Bojangles to this day, 27 years later, has never been identified. Um, there was another potential suspect, a gentleman by the name of Chris Morgan. He was a 19-year-old local, and he drove an ice cream truck in the neighborhood that the boys were from. It was actually two neighborhoods side by side. but And he knew Stevie because Stevie used to come to his truck to get ice cream. Because that's what you do when you're an eight-year-old and the ice cream truck comes around. Yeah. Well, Mr. Morgan moved suddenly and unexpectedly to California within days of the bodies being found. But he was questioned by California authorities on behalf of the West Memphis authorities and was very quickly cleared. Okay. How he was very quickly cleared, I'm not really completely sure. There's not a lot known about this cat, so trying to find information on how he was actually questioned and what he actually said is a little difficult. There's snippets here and there. Um, but in my opinion, the snippets I've seen, he said a few things that could have been considered incriminating, but he was very quickly eliminated. So moving on. So at this point, they've talked to Damien and Jason, and they've talked to Chris Morgan, and they've, they've talked to family members and various neighbors trying to get more information about the boys and if they saw anything suspicious. But they really had nothing. They didn't come up with any evidence that led anywhere at this no. point? There was, I mean, they'd had, um, they'd found a red microscopic fiber on the t-shirt that was identified as belonging to Chris Byers, but they had nothing to match it to. Right. Um, there was no blood at the crime scene from the victims or any potential 
suspects. Do they have a a um? Do they know how the boys died? Uh, well, initially, well, I'll kind of get to that when we get to the trial. Um, but initially, they had used their satanic ritual murder theory uh, and pushed it as hard as they possibly could. So there was, they were saying that, uh, uh, for example, Chris Byers died from blood loss because of his scrotum being removed, that they were beaten to death and suffered uh, brain injuries. But over time, we were able to actually determine their cause of death. And all three boys died from drowning which means they were alive when they were hogtied and put in the Which would explain why there was no blood. Exactly. And they've also determined that those injuries that were originally attributed to beating and sexual mutilation were all, according to some of the best forensic uh, experts in the world, and I do mean the world. I'm talking about Werner Spitz, for those of you who are familiar with. He is like the godfather of forensic pathology. He's the one everyone learns from to become a forensic pathologist. And all of the injuries were post-mortem, which also explains no blood. Right. Well, and if they, and if they died in the water, post-mortem would have been in the water, which would have washed anything away. But are we jumping right. ahead? We're jumping ahead a little. But all of the injuries, just for, spoiler alert, all of the injuries were post-mortem and were most likely caused by animal activity in the canal, primarily turtles, hence why I talked about turtles earlier. Okay, end of spoiler alert. So while they had nothing, a local resident named Vicki Hutchison, who happened to be dealing with her own legal issues, she had actually taken a lie detector test on May 6th, which was the day the bodies were found, in a completely unrelated theft case. She was being accused of stealing from her place of work. I could not find whether she passed or failed that polygraph, but it's really irrelevant. It's just to show that she had some legal troubles happening. Contacted the West Memphis Police Department and alleged that her son, Aaron, who was also eight years old, was quote unquote best friends with the three murdered boys, that he had witnessed the murders occur, and that she also knew a local boy who was friends with Damien and Jason named Jesse Miss Kelly Jr so that she might be able to help and get information from Jesse regarding Damien and Jason. Now, her son could never give a solid statement. He made a whole lot of uh, insinuations about where it took place, how it took place. None of it was true. And it ended up coming out later that he didn't even know the three boys. They didn't go to the same school. They didn't, I mean, they, they didn't know each other and they didn't live in the same neighborhood. Uh, okay. But she did, in fact, know Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., who was a 17 year old local. Jesse was a sweet, quiet, gentle person who unfortunately had some mental defects. Jesse had an IQ of 72 and was considered mildly clinically retarded. So, you know, he wasn't the sharpest tool in the in the shed, but he was sweet. He babysat for her, for her son, Aaron. He did yard work for her that she paid him for. So they did know each other. She was telling the truth about right. that. What she didn't, 
wasn't telling the truth about other than her son was that Jesse was not friends with Damien or Jason. They knew each other from school, but they would be qualified as acquaintances. So they knew each other, but they weren't friends. But Vicki Hutchinson, in this process, was asked by the West Memphis Police Department to cozy up to Jesse and get him to let her cozy up to Damien. And she did just that. She got Jesse to introduce her to Damien, and Damien came over to her house. And they had a nice conversation. She said he was a nice kid. He didn't say anything incriminating. You know, they just, they had a conversation. And to kind of set the scene, the police department had provided Miss Hutchinson with occult books to lay around her house so that when Damien came in, he would see them and maybe it would strike up a conversation. And she said later that the only thing that it did was he happened to notice the book on the coffee table and he made a statement to the effect of, um, man, that really makes me nervous or something. And, and she said, well, why would you be nervous? And he said, you'd be nervous too if they were trying to pin three little kids' murders on you. And she said, well, yeah, I guess so. And, and she goes, well, I mean, did you do it? And she said, Damien looked her straight in the eye and said, I'd never do something like that. And that was the end of their conversation. That's the only contact they ever had. Okay. That is not, however, what she testifies to in court. Okay, so when did this version of the story come out then? If she testified to something else in court? This, she initially testified to this, to the police. She told them that he came to the house and he didn't say anything incriminating. They were recording. She had a recorder on, but they claim that the uh, recording was too muffled. You couldn't hear anything. Okay, so she says she told the police this originally. Which she did. There's records to show that this is what she told the police originally. Okay, she that... comes back later. Hold on. Okay, I'm just trying to figure <laughs> yeah. out why. Okay. Vicky comes back in a big, bad way. So when, the, when this plan to try to trap Damien fails, when he doesn't say anything incriminating to Vicki Hutchison, when nothing else has worked, they decide that they're going to talk to Jesse themselves. And this is the beginning of the end. This is where things get real dicey. Because Jesse is brought in for questioning on June 3rd of 1993. So initially, it's a casual conversation. Do you know anything about this? Do you know anything about that? Did you know the victims? Did you know their families? You know, and of course, no, no, no. He didn't know any of them. And then it starts turning towards, well, do you know maybe who did this? And he has no idea. He tells them over and over again, I don't know who did this. I don't know why they do it. I wasn't even in town. He was in Dias, Arkansas, which is about 40 miles away at a high school wrestling match. Okay. He signed in a visitor's book. Okay. So he has a good so alibi. So he has an alibi. At this point, all three of our boys have alibis. have alibis that are backed up by witnesses and in Jesse's case, documentation. So you think you're golden, right? I mean, you, you, you'd you'd think assume that would be okay. That everything's fine. Move on. Moving on. No, they don't move on. He denies any involvement and agrees to take a polygraph test. He takes said polygraph test. Now, he is told that he failed. He is told by the officers he failed the polygraph test. And they immediately 
flip the switch. It goes from nice cop to bad cop real, real quick. This is five and a half hours in to talking to him when the switch flips. He is interrogated for a total of 12 hours. This is a kid who is mentally deficient, who has an IQ of only 72. I don't know what an average IQ is, to be honest. I should have looked it up, but I didn't. But I know it's way higher than that. So he's read his Miranda rights, but he doesn't understand them. He has no reason to understand them because 17-year-old Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. is living with a five-year-old mind. Yeah, he's... Yeah, he doesn't understand what's going on. He doesn't on. get it. He doesn't know. And his father gave them permission to talk to him, but he did not expressly give them permission to interrogate him. There is a difference. So for reference, average IQ is 100. When you get down to 70, you're you're talking like 2% of the population. And he was a 72. So he was just into the next bracket, which puts you somewhere. You but know, if you if you know anything about, about that, this case and you've ever watched Jesse talk... He's now a 30, nearly 40-year-old man, and he sounds like you're talking to, like, a 10-year-old. Yeah. But he's sweet. He's sweet and gentle and kind. So after five and a half hours of we don't even know what, why don't we know? Because out of 12 hours of interrogation, do you want to know how many minutes we have on tape? 46. 46 minutes out of of 12 hours. 12 hours. Just the 46 they needed, right? <laughs> exactly. It's it's just the 46 you needed. How convenient. A lot of stuff in this one is convenient. So after that five and a half hours of questioning initially, they fi- and telling him he's failed the polygraph test, and spoiler alert, Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. did not fail the polygraph test. He, in fact, passed it with flying colors except for one question, and it had nothing to do with the case. I honestly can't right now in my head remember the question, but it had nothing to do with the case. That is a dirty police tactic. And they do it all the time. Well, except um, if I remember right, there's a more recent case where that has been deemed improper and they can't. Good, but it was still proper in 1993. So two segments of the interview are recorded for a total of 46 minutes. I don't know how long each one is. I did listen to them, but I didn't pay attention to the, the numbers. But what you hear, if you, it, for those of you who haven't heard it, but I highly, highly recommend if you haven't heard Jesse's recorded statement and you're interested in this case at all, go actually listen to it because the whole thing, because then you'll hear how manipulative these officers were being and how they are taking his hand and leading him where they want him to go. And which would be fairly easy with. With someone, someone with that. with Jesse's mental capacity? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, it would be insanely easy. It would take nothing to do that. I mean, you can do it to a broken, intelligent person. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when look, you... I need to make it very clear that uh, people with even high end of the spectrum IQs have been known to falsely confess after hours and hours of torturous interrogation. Yeah, you break them down and... Anyone can be manipulated into a false confession. And... I know there's people out there going, yeah, right. I would never falsely confess. Just wait until you're the one on the other end. Don't be so sure. Don't be so cocky. Trust me. So over the next, however, you know, six and a half hours, of which only 46 minutes is recorded, they coax this confession. And I'm air quoting right now. (laughs) 
out of him. Now, the interesting part, I think, is that they actually record themselves manipulating him. It's all, it would be laughable if this hadn't ended so horribly. It would be laughable if they, if they hadn't gotten away with it. Right, exactly. Exactly. Because, so Jesse claims, first he says I had nothing to do with it. Then he tells them I was in Dias at a wrestling match. I, I couldn't have done it. I wasn't here. Then they finally coax this confession out of him. And initially it's, okay, what time did you get to the woods? Oh, around noon. Wait, in the daytime? Yeah, at noon. The kids were at school. Right. Jason was at school. There's records to prove that. So, okay, try again. Try again. So then they start going, well, are you sure it was noon? Are you sure? Like, are you sure it wasn't? But I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I don't need to go into full depth on this. I get the picture. They pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed until they got the answer they wanted. But the funniest part about it is they freaking record half of that. I mean, you can hear them leading him, leading him, leading him. And it's like, why did you leave that in the recording? You idiots. Like, well, you... anyway, it's just crazy. So what he ends up telling them after hours of coaxing is that Jason invited him to go to Robin Hood Hills to hang out with Damien. He claimed they ran into the boys and the murders then occurred. However, his only participation allegedly was preventing Michael Moore from running away. In his version of the story, Michael Moore tried to run away and he stopped him and brought him back. Okay. But he says... Like I said, that it took place at noon, that apparently all six of them had skipped school, which we know is not true. Right. And we know that the, the boys... boys had been tied up with rope. They weren't tied up with rope. They were tied up with their own shoelaces. That's something someone who was there would know. You know, um, he claims that they were raped. There was no evidence that the boys were raped. None of his story matches the evidence at the actual crime scene or on the actual bodies. It's it's a nonsensical story. It's a false story. Like, he's making it up to please these officers, and they're leading him to 99% of it anyway. Right. But they have their confession. So now they can go after the other boys. So they immediately go out and arrest Damien and Jason, who happened to be at Damien's house watching TV with his sister at the time when they showed up. So, I mean, it was easy for the cops because they were both right there. Yeah. So they take them in. And uh, the saddest part of that story is Damien's sister, Michelle, said that when the cops showed up, they banged on the door. Damien opens the door and he opens it to a rifle barrel in his face. And, you know, the officer screaming, don't move, don't move. Well, the officer holding the gun, according to Michelle, said to Damien, basically begged him to move. He said, move. I dare you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Damien didn't move, I'll tell you that. But it was, I mean, he, that guy was wanting to shoot him. He wanted Damien to give him a reason to shoot him. Because as far as that officer was concerned, this is the this guy is who the, murdered three yeah. little eight-year-old boys. So I guess I sort of understand the emotion. the emotions there. running high in the situation. Now, but. following the arrests of all three, because Jesse got arrested after his confession was completed, obviously. Damien, Poor kid. I know. Damien and Jason get arrested that evening the next day gary gitchell the chief inspector of the west memphis police department holds a televised press conference a live press conference on on television one of the reporters 
asked him, how strong is your case on a scale of 1 to 10? And Gary Gitchell arrogantly and smugly smiles and says, 11. (laughs) Oh, let's see. They all have alibis. All you have is a poor confession that was coerced out of somebody. Who's mentally incapacitated. low IQ and that's it. Right. So shortly after the press conference, the judge assigned to the case, gentleman named uh, Judge David Barnett, issued a gag order. So he's like, okay, we're not talking to anybody anymore. They can't, the families can't talk to the police, the police, or the press, the police can't talk to, nobody's talking to the press. Gag order. Guess what gets leaked to the press? To the Memphis Commercial Appeal, the biggest newspaper in Arkansas, gets Jesse's entire confession. Oh, talk about prejudicing jury A transcript of the entire confession is published on the front page of the Memphis Commercial Appeal. And that could have only come from one place. Mm-hmm. Gary Gitchell. Just kidding. Sorry, Gary. All right. So, well, maybe it was you. I don't know. So <laughs> this obviously created a mass panic in the community. I mean, they're like, oh, my God. Like, are you reading this? Are you re- Look at the, what these, these people did to our babies. Like, look at this. Look at that. I mean, it was just it was insanity. At, at the level of insanity went from zero to 100 real fast. I mean, they had to put armed guards on Damien and Jason and Jesse whenever they were being taken to the courthouse because people were threatening to kill them. I mean, it was just it was a mess. It was like O.J. Simpson level crazy minus the Bronco chase. But the worst thing is how horrifically that tainted their jury pool. Oh, yeah. You couldn't pull from anywhere in the state of Arkansas or in the state of Mississippi or in the state, you know, anywhere in that general area that got that paper on the regular. Forget it. You've just tainted your entire jury pool. You might as well take it out of the damn country if you want to get a fair trial. But they didn't want a fair trial. Of course they didn't. So shortly after that, it was decided that Jesse would be tried separately and that Damien and Jason would then later be tried together. I think the reasoning behind that was they wanted to use Jesse as a witness against Damien and Jason since he's the one who accused them in the first place. Right. But Jesse had already retracted his statement saying that the police had coerced him into it, that it was all a lie. You know, he wasn't there. He was in Dias. I mean, he went back to the original true version of the story. Right, once he wasn't. And he adamantly refused to testify against Damien and Jason because none of this happened. Right. So uh, a gentleman by the name of Dan Stidham, a local attorney, was appointed as Jesse's court-appointed attorney because obviously we're talking about poor families. They can't afford a decent you know, an expensive attorney. I don't want to say decent because Dan Stedham is one of the best attorneys in the country, I think. He's amazing. Now, originally when he took on the case, he thought that Jesse was guilty. He'd read the confession just like everybody else and he just assumed that he was probably guilty and that his whole job and this whole thing was just going to be to negotiate a plea. You know, he was like, okay, I'm going to go in there, I'm going to negotiate a plea, he's going to go to prison and it's over. That's the end of it. Till he started reading things and talked to Jesse and it's like a switch flipped. Because he immediately was like, oh, shoot, no, this, this is wrong. Right. He didn't do this. They didn't do this. So he starts mounting a vigorous defense for Jesse. He gets experts to talk about false confessions and false stories and how they are extracted from people. I mean, he went all out as much as he could in 1993. Right. Um, starts researching, interviewing witnesses, getting all kinds of signed witness statements about him being in Dias that night. I mean, it was just, you know, all the, all the stuff. 
and really honing in on that timeline issue where he kept insisting initially it was noon and which, then one and then three. And then finally the cops lead him to 630, which is when it actually might have occurred. So he realizes it's a false story. Everybody else who's on Jesse's team realizes it's a false story and they mount this defense. Jesse had been offered numerous deals to testify against Damien and Jason, including, you know, a reduced sentence, possibly not being sentenced at all. And he refused because he refused to lie. Right. Because they might not have been his friends, quote unquote, but they were people he knew and he wasn't going to lie about them because that's not how he was raised by his amazing father, Jesse Miss Kelly Sr., who never, his support for his son never wavered. Not once. I'm just glad he was still alive when, and I think he is still alive, but I'm really glad he was still alive when, when uh, the resolution that we'll talk about later happened. So Jesse's trial started on January 26th of 1994. It ended on February 4th of 1994. He was convicted of first-degree murder for the death of Michael Moore since he had claimed to have chased him down and brought him back to the crime scene. He was considered responsible for his death. He was convicted of two counts of second-degree murder for Chris and Stevie and was sentenced to a term of life plus 40 years. So life for Michael Moore, 20 years for Chris, 20 years for Stevie. And that's where we're going to end today's episode. Um, we're going to end it with the end of Jesse's trial, and we are going to pick right back up with our next episode with the beginning of Damien and Jason's trial and get ready for a bumpy ride. Because if you don't know this case, whoo, get ready because it's about to get crazy. So we will see you guys on the next one, and I hope you're having a great day. Say bye, honey. Bye. Ultimately, the system works. Consequences 